and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfond? What do you want to talk about today? <laughs> uh, we, we've got a wide assortment of potential topics in a league that is... I don't know, what's, what's the word? How would you describe what this season has been so far? Jumbled, condensed, completely indecipherable. I don't know. Uh, Unpredictable, man. Uh, yeah. On a night-to-night basis. It's something we talked about this off-air. It's something I'm actually mm-hmm. writing about right now. Um, kind of revisiting a short feature I wrote during opening week about how this season was shaping up to be an unprecedented season of parody and randomness and unpredictability for NBA standards. But... A lot of the stuff I used to kind of determine that going into the season, at the end of the day, that was like preseason stuff. It was looking at rosters. It was looking at betting odds and projection systems. No games had actually been played yet. And so it was very possible that once the games would be played, we'd be like, nah, it's just another NBA season. There are these few dominant teams. There are some bad teams. And then, you know, whatever. But now we're halfway through the season and that, you know, prediction and obviously it wasn't just me predicting it like i said a lot of it was based on projection just projection systems and betting odds but it's come to fruition with the games now being played like we're seeing it play out in real time on the court and i'm writing about it right now maybe some of the different reasons for it but yeah i'd say random and unpredictable i mean i've tweeted a couple times in the last 10 days about how upsets happen obviously all the time in every season but I don't remember a season where huge favorites are getting blown out as often as it's happening this season. Like, yeah, in in any NBA season, you'll have, you know, the 72 win bowls lost to the expansion Raptors. But usually when games like that or events like that would occur, it would be like crazy upset, but the underdog team is obviously like fighting tooth and nail and holding on, you know, to keep the the heavy favorite at bay. Whereas this year, it's like just since the calendar flipped to 2023, we had the Celtics favored by 11 and a half, losing by 30 something in OKC. We had the Bucks favored by double digits, losing by 29 at home to Charlotte. A couple nights ago, we had uh, Minnesota, or it might have been last night, I don't know, within the last couple nights, Minnesota uh, favored by almost double digits against the Pistons. Now, they were in Detroit, but it was the Pistons on the second night of a back-to-back with all their injuries, and the Pistons waxed them. So I think for me, it's the randomness, the unpredictability night tonight, and it's not just that upsets are happening. It's the degree of the upsets and the fact that underdogs and huge underdogs are blowing heavy favorites out every other night. It's just that doesn't happen in the NBA, and this year it happens quite frequently. Yeah, I mean, to sort of put a couple of numbers on it. One is that the Celtics currently have the best net rating in the league at plus 6.2. I'm using the NBA.com metric for that. And in their database, it only goes back to 96, 97. So that's 26 years, 27 seasons. If you include this year, that would be 27 seasons. That's the lowest net rating for any team leading the league. in that statistic in the whole NBA.com database. So, I don't know how much further you could go back to find a season like this one. And obviously that is subject to change. I mean, maybe an, you know a team catches a heater and pulls away and it'll look different at the end of the season. But halfway through the year, that's like the least dominant best team in the league that we've seen in at least 26 or 27 seasons. And 
Then you look at the West and again, halfway through the season, right? Like if this was a month into the year, like this level of separation would make sense. But halfway through the season, the Sacramento Kings are fourth in the West right now. My yeah. fight in Sacramento Kings. Your Kings. A, a home court advantage team if the season ended today. And they are three games up on 11th. A team that is currently slated to finish with a top four seed is three games away from being out of the play-in tournament entirely. This is parody. This is what it looks like, right? And we were talking off-air too about there's no team that has more than one top 15 player right now. Yep. Right? Like, I think we could say the Lakers if both those guys are healthy, but Anthony Davis is healthy half the time. So I don't right. think as I really messaged you, As I messaged you last night, I think the Lakers have two top 15 talents but when you consider season-long impact, they don't have two top 15 players. Yeah, so it's just we have this sort of star dispersal now that I think a lot of people have been clamoring for for a long yep. time. I'm not saying, you know, the super team era is dead and buried. Like, maybe we'll see that come back in some form or fashion. But for now, the stars around the league are kind of spread out. And we have this real balance of team quality as a result and three-point variance as well i think the, yeah i think that the, that contributes to it without the a pro- proliferation of the three-pointer in today's game and the variance yeah. and randomness that that brings to it in a league which to your point is also more talent dispersed and balanced i think those two things although that three-point volume hasn't meaningfully increased in like the last two years so i don't know that that fully explains it like this season versus or are you just saying that it's kind of been like this for for the last two, three years? And- what I'm saying is that the way three-pointers have kind of taken over the game, not just this year, but in general, in the modern era, leads mm-hmm. to variance and randomness, which when combined with the talent dispersal that we now see. And then I think you can throw in too, like whether it's injuries or guys resting, like inconsistent lineups on a night-to-night basis, stars sitting whether due to injuries or rest or whatever i think all those things play in um and i think those of that and the talent dispersal has increased this season and combined with the three-point variance that had already crept in i think it's all kind of coming together to create this uh this season where honestly for the first time in in my memory it truly feels like any single matchup anyone can win now it doesn't mean you would pick you know the pistons over the celtics or the hornets over the bucks or whatever but it's the first time I can remember where you genuinely go into those games being like the heavy favorite should not take this win for granted. Like they can very easily lose this game and potentially even get waxed. Yeah. I, I guess my question for you then would be, do you attribute that more to the best teams being weaker than they've been in the past or the worst teams being better than they've been in the past? you know, like a, a kind of depth of quality teams or at least a depth of like average teams versus just, you know, like kind of weaker teams at the top. No, I'd, I'd say both a little column A, a little column B. I think the talent dispersal means that the absolute top teams are nowhere near as ahead uh, of the pact as they usually are in the NBA. And I think just that then when we talk about the talent dispersal and also what I think is just a golden age of overall talent in basketball right now, I think the worst teams are just more capable than they have been in the past because even the worst players are better than they were. So I I just think there's like a, there's a narrowing of the gap between the best and the worst. And then I think 
the except middle for the of the Rockets, or except for the Rockets, who just play the dumbest basketball I've ever seen. <laughs> and then uh, the middle of the pack, almost by default, mm-hmm. is closer to each end. You know what I mean? Because it's like the, the best teams are no longer as dominant. And so if you're in the middle of the pack, you're closer to them. But the worst teams are probably a little better than they usually are. And so if you're in the middle of the pack, you're also closer to them. It's just this really fascinating jumble. Yeah, and I think that makes it hard to kind of get a beat on, you know, the teams that are going to be relevant when it comes to the spring, you know. And obviously we talk, you know, we make an effort to talk about just about every team. But I think it's hard to not place a little bit more emphasis on like the teams that we feel really matter. And I actually feel like this season we've had to cast a wider net because there are so many teams that could potentially matter. I think like something you said to me a couple of days ago that I thought was really on point was, you know, the playoffs this year are going to have a real NHL kind of feel to them where, you know, one versus eight doesn't mean what it usually does. I think that's more true in the West yep. than it is in the East. You know, it's more like one through five in the East, I feel like, where, I, you know, any of those teams I could see maybe coming out of that conference. But yeah, it's it's just going to be anarchy. And again, always subject to change. We might see some more stratification moving forward. But, you know, we'll, we'll hit on this quickly before before we move on to talking about a couple of these teams that I feel like we anticipate being contenders but you know that means something different maybe this year than it's meant in years past where all these contenders are super flawed um the brooklyn nets man this sort of resurgent contender that we talked about in pretty glowing terms on our last episode i don't know if there have been any documented instances of the pound the rock curse up to this point but this may be the first because you know, just a couple of days after we lavished praise on Kevin Durant for the ridiculous season that he is having, he goes down with that MCL sprain. And uh, what, what do they say? He's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. Which... Reevaluated in two weeks, but the reports are that he's going to miss a- about a month. Yeah. So, again, I don't think we need to delve into this too deeply just because if you listened to our last episode or if you missed it and feel like listening to our thoughts on the Nets and Kevin Durant's season, you can go and listen to that. Like we went into that in some detail uh, and you know, the extent to which we believed or didn't believe in their resurgence and just how much of that was being powered by him. I mean, we're going to find out a lot about this team over the next month and how much of I'm interested to see how much of the defensive improvement they can sustain because even as it was, they were getting pretty fortunate in terms of opponent shooting. Like I think during this stretch where, where they've been either the best or the second best defense in basketball, I think they've had the second lowest opponent three point percentage and the lowest opponent mid range shooting percentage. So you know, as much as we talked about how improved their interior defense is, you know, how good Nick Claxton has been, how good Durant has been, they they were still having to get by a little bit on opponent shooting luck. So without KD, I mean, yeah, what's, what's that going to look like now without, you know, at the very worst, their second best defender? Like, can, can Simmons kind of he, he's he been good defensively this year, but he hasn't been like peak Simmons defensively. And I feel like this is going to put a lot of onus on him to step it up at that end of the floor. 
you know, you could say that it'll put onus on him to step up at the offensive end of the floor. I just don't. Nah. <laughs> well, it's not. <sighs> Look, I guess you could say there were some situations, right? Like in years past when Embiid would go out and he would kind of take off offensively. It's a bit different structure in Brooklyn. Like that's not, you know, maybe he'll touch the ball more and be asked to kind of connect more possessions. But, you know, the, all, all those sort of Durant, on ball reps, like the the possessions that he's initiating or finishing as a jump shooter. Um, I don't know. I mean, like those are going to be redistributed elsewhere for the most part, I think. I think there's a recipe there to at worst survive when it's Kyrie Irving plus shooting plus defense. Now, obviously the defense, as you're talking about, is the big question mark and how much of that they can sustain. I do think there's still enough there between Claxton, Simmons, even when they're separated, Royce O'Neal, who we talked about last week, having a good year for them, like Watanabe. I, I think there's still enough there that with Kyrie and shooting, if the defense is just competent, they'll be fine. And by finding like that, maybe they can play 500 ball. I went through the schedule like over the next month. If KD misses basically a month since he last played, it's about a 13, 14, 15 game stretch, depending on which day you use. But I think they can play about 500-ish ball and if they do that and KD comes back and they're still, you know, 14, 15 games above 500, they might have fallen off quite a ways behind the Celtics at that point. But I honestly still think if they just tread water for the next month, they'll still very much be in the hunt for a top two, at worst, like top three seed in the East. Um, and if you look at the numbers with Kyrie on and KD off this season, they're still over plus two per 100 possessions, which again, it's not great, but it's solid without KD. So I do think there's a recipe there where they can just tread water. It is contingent on the defense staying something close to what it's been. It is contingent on Kyrie as the lead guy, just like playing ball and staying focused and staying distraction free. So obviously no way to guarantee it with this particular cast of characters, but I do think based on what we've seen in the last couple months, and even when KD's been off the court and Kyrie's been on it, I, I think they should survive. I think it's time for bubble TJ Warren to make his long-awaited return. He's yeah. been a really nice bench piece for them. It's been It's warmed my heart, as you can imagine, to finally see him back on the court and contributing to winning basketball, but they might need more from him than just you know his nine and a half points in 18 minutes a game off the bench if they're going to weather this absence. Because to the point about the defense, a lot of that's been driven by their ability recently to have Claxton and Simmons on the floor together at the same time. And those groups have survived offensively because they usually have both KD and Kyrie out there. And without KD... I don't know that that's going to be the case. I don't know if those units can survive offensively. And if they can't, well, then they're going to have to go to a different look. And how is that going to compromise their defense? Like there are just, obviously, anytime a player of, of KD's talent and magnitude goes out, there are going to be big ripple effects. But yeah, I'm super curious to see how they impact Brooklyn and what lengths they're going to have to go to to patch over that massive hole. Uh, last thing I'll note is, I think one thing to keep an eye on is, if you go by the reports of KD being out a month and you go from when he was injured, that brings him to about February 8th, February 9th. That's less than a week or just about a week before the All-Star break. And so I do wonder if the Nets 
would consider just holding him out until the like the all-star break to get him that extra week and a little bit of rest that if they were to do that that would mean like four extra games in addition Mm -hmm. to the month that was reported and I think those games are like Knicks Heat Sixers Bulls so all East opponents um that in the end might just be contingent on how they survive the month without him like if say He's pretty much ready to come back, you know, after the month, but they've done pretty well without him. And then they look at it as like, look, we got four games over the next week between now and the all-star break. Rather than rushing you in now, why don't we just sit you another couple weeks? You'll only miss four games. You can come back fresh after the break. I think it's easier to do that if, you know, they've treaded water without him as opposed to like if they completely fall off a cliff without him and he's ready, they probably bring him back for that week. You know, all-star break be damned. Yeah. Uh, Worth pointing out too, we're we're recording this on... Thursday evening. If you're listening to this, it will be Friday or later, and we will have already seen the Nets play a game uh, without Kevin Durant playing against the Celtics. So my expectation would be that it's not going to go super well. Uh, it's a pretty tough one to start off with when your best player and you know MVP candidate goes down, but uh, certainly a. Uh, you know, a good litmus test, just getting thrown right into the fire there with a game against the, not only East leaders, but the NBA leaders right now. Uh, I think we can leave that there. And uh, why don't we take the break here and we'll come back and talk about a couple uh, couple contenders going in, I don't know if it's fair to say opposite directions, but in different places right now, let's say that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Uh, the, the two teams I really wanted to talk about today are the teams that I picked to make the finals before the season. The Milwaukee Bucks and the Denver Nuggets. And like I just said, they're not exactly going in opposite directions right now, but one of these teams is really rolling and really hitting its stride and just sort of firing on all cylinders. And the other one is sort of creaking along and they're making it work mainly because their defense remains extraordinary, but we're seeing some cracks and my attitude toward this the entire time, because their struggles have been going on for quite a while now has been, you know, to, to be patient to not overreact, to anticipate that this team is very much going to be there in the end. But I'm starting to have some doubts about that, just given what we've seen. And more importantly than that, given the status of their lead ball handler. So, Cash, the Bucs are 27-14. and You know, half game behind the Nets for second in the East, two and a half behind the Celtics for tops in the East. But a 1.4 net rating and tied with Miami for the 26th ranked offense in basketball. Nasty. Middleton came back, did not look great, 
went out again with an injury in his non-surgically repaired knee, which I don't know if that's better or worse. Like, would you feel like you feel better about him having two, like a surgically repaired knee and now an injured other knee? Or like, would you feel worse about it if he'd re-injured the knee that he'd had surgically repaired? I don't know. I don't know which is worse, but either way, it's bad. And I'm just starting to wonder like, I, I don't know that it's fair to expect that we're going to see the Chris Middleton that we have grown accustomed to seeing at any point this season. And if we don't, this team's in real trouble. Like, the offense is such a slog. Giannis is having to do way too much. His usage rate is completely off the charts. And his efficiency has maybe tanked as a strong word, but... It has slid in from various areas of the court. It's not just like his overall true shooting percentage. You look at um, his shooting from close to the rim, the floater range, his overall efficiency. Like Giannis is still great. Don't get me wrong. Still be- belongs in the MVP conversation, but he has not been quite as inevitable as he usually is. And I, you know, what else can you point to other than the fact that he's being asked to do too much on this Middleton list team? Yeah, I don't think there is anything else to point to. Like, there's just not enough supplemental creation, probably not enough shooting around him either. And inevitably, that's going to take a toll. Uh, Giannis is still incredible. Like, he is, we can get in, I suppose, to talking about whether we still think he's the best player in the NBA because, uh, you know, the the guy leading the other team that we're going to talk about is making a pretty strong case right now. But, you know, he's at worst top two in my mind. So I don't think there are any concerns with him, you know, despite the, the tailing efficiency, like you mentioned, but look, how many times do we need to see that drew holiday for as exceptional as he is in so many different ways, is just not really cut out to be a lead offensive guard. He has a real sense of the moment. Yeah. As as this week has shown. Yeah, like last night, you know, the Bucks almost blow a 24-point lead against the Hawks. The Hawks came all the way back to tie that game in the fourth quarter because, again, the Bucks just couldn't score, had like all these extended offensive droughts, and then Holiday comes through with some big buckets down the stretch, just like he did to save them in that game against the Knicks where they came back from, I think, 18 points down yeah. to win. And he it's scored like, from behind the backboard last night. <laughs> yeah, and in that Knicks game, I, I think he had been maybe 0 for 7 or like 1 for 8 going into the final minute and a half of that game and then just hit three contested step backs to ice it. Like, it would just be nice if he could do that over the course of the game so it didn't have to come down to that. But I guess it's good that, you know, when they need him to, he can kind of get them over the finish line. But man, they are wheezing over the finish line in a lot of these games. And it just doesn't look great to me. Like, I guess it's nice to see Ingles back and kind of looking like Joe Ingles again. And like, you know, his his defense still kind of makes him a liability, but they got to play him, man, because they need his playmaking. Yeah. Like, that's just an element that they haven't had. His connectivity that, is really stands out on this team. Like, he's still able to kind of keep possessions humming and flowing with his decision making and his yeah. IQ. And yeah, to your point, a team this starved for offense needs any help it can get. Yeah, and he's hit some big shots for them too. Like I the the shooting I think is still there and you know as much as it's a 35-year-old coming off a, a devastating ACL injury, 
you know, it's Joe Ingles, right? He's not reliant on bursts. It's always been more about guile with him. And I said this before the season, like I was skeptical of them using their taxpayer mid-level to sign him for all those reasons. And again, I'm still kind of worried come playoff time that he's just not going to be able to hang. But I did note at the time that he was probably the best pure passer on the team. And that was something that they really needed. So for now, uh, he's going to be an important part of kind of keeping them afloat. And Marjan Bochamp too. Like I think he's kind of stepped up and, and he gives them like a much needed dose of athleticism on the wing. Like they just don't really get that from anywhere else. And, one of the notes I had in in my podcast prep was that they're literally not athletic enough. Yeah, but he he gives them that. Like he yep. gets off the ground, and I, I think he's a a really solid transition player, both as a finisher and like a connective transition playmaker. He makes good decisions. Yep. Um, I think his defense has been solid. Like he's already way ahead of where Jordan Nawara is at to me. Yes. Right. If you're thinking about who's gonna gonna fill those minutes on the wing. Um, Portis has been good off the bench. Obviously not a wing, but he's, Dude, he's Portis, so, Portis I think he's a godsend for that. He should man. be in the sixth man of the year conversation. I know you don't like talking about awards early in the season, stuff, but I just mean it more like I, I see people tweet about it or talk about it in various outlets. And it's usually always like the, the microwave type guards and guys, but like, if I have to hear one more time that like Russell Westbrook's resurgence should have him in sixth man of the year conversation, I'm going to vomit. Like, listen, Russ has been better in this current role for sure. And that's been nice to see. He has not, by impact, he has not been close to being one of the best reserves in basketball. No. Bobby Portis is miles ahead of him impact-wise. Um, so that's my little spiel on that. I think Portis has been great. But, um, I mean... He, he's bailed them out of so many yes. jams. Like, so many of their offensive droughts, He he's the one who kind of gets them out of it just with his ability to... Whether, like, he'll work the pick-and-pop game, obviously, but he'll also just get down in the post and scrounge a bucket basically out of thin air and he'll get on the offensive glass and offensive rebounding has been a really big part of their offensive identity this year like I don't know where they would be at if they weren't you know last I checked they were top six in offensive rebound rate so you can imagine how rough it's been just on their first shot possessions considering they have like such a sky high offensive rebound rate and are still only 26th in overall offensive efficiency so Huge hats off to Portis, but I don't know, man. I mean, I guess I'll ask you because you came into the season picking uh, the Bucks to win the championship, as I did. Has anything you've seen from them? Let's forget about what we've seen from the rest of the league. Just what you've seen from the Bucks. Has anything you've seen from them made you change your mind or put some doubt in your head about whether that is the the correct pick still? After uh, half a season, doubt for sure, but it's all because of the offensive end, and like just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around a team that struggles to create in the half court the way the Bucks do. You know, winning the championship at the end, but I do continue to remind myself that as rough as Chris Middleton looked in that first stretch when he returned, as much as yes, he's now got two different knee issues he's dealing with. I'm just still holding out hope that when he gets back. You know, if he can even be like 80% of what he was by the time the playoffs roll around, that the Bucks will still have just enough offensively between everything that Giannis does 
what Middleton can do as a shot creator and shot maker. And with the just immense defensive ceiling that comes with having Giannis, Holiday, and Lopez, and then more on that team. So I'm still... I'd still pick them as my title team because I really do think between that defensive ceiling and what I still think their offense can do once Middleton is back, I think it will be enough. But I'd be lying if I'm, you know, if I said I wasn't concerned or there aren't doubts based on what we've seen through half a season with or without Middleton. Like, yeah, the offense is absolutely ugly. And the thing that's also concerning is like, whether you talk about that offense or the shooting, whether you talk about them needing a, a jolt of athleticism, Whatever it is, I think we can agree that this team can really use an upgrade somewhere. Like they can use, even it doesn't have to be a big move, obviously, but they can use some sort of upgrade. Well, unless they're going to find that on the buyout market, how in the hell are they going to find it? Because this is a team that does not control their own first round pick again until 2028. Can't trade a first rounder until 2029. You look at their contract situation and the fact that Obviously, they're a very veteran team who have paid their guys and understandably so, but like there's no financial wiggle room. They don't really have the draft capital at all or really the young talent to put something together. Like we're talking about how obvious it is that they need some upgrades. And unless it's coming on the buyout market, uh, how's it coming? I don't know. I mean, I guess that 2028 first rounder (laughs) packaged with. Well, it'd be 2029. Like, they have their own first round pick in 2028, but they can't trade one until 2029. Their 2027 picks already out the door. Correct. Yeah, they have. They've either they've given up or swapped every pick uh, starting this year until 2027. Man, so I think back to that reported uh, Jay Crowder trade that fell apart, where they were going to give up Grayson Allen. Uh, he was going to go to Houston. Eric Gordon was going to go to Phoenix, and Crowder was going to go to Milwaukee, which. At the time, I was like, that trade makes sense for all three sides. I'm still not remembering which of those sides backed out, but I would be fine with that if I was any of those three teams. I'm actually now starting to think that the Bucks might need Grayson Allen more than they would need Jay Crowder. Like, I don't know that that trade would actually make them better. Crowder's great, and, you know, obviously they're looking for somebody to fill that kind of P.J. Tucker role. Uh from the championship team where he helps them fill out the Giannis at center lineups. He obviously gives them an option to throw at opposing power wings. And, you know, Crowder could do that while being more of an active participant in the offense than PJ Tucker was. But I think they need Grayson Allen shooting maybe more than they need that defensive element. Like, and you know, it's not like Grayson Allen's a great playmaker, but you can put the ball in his hands and he is not going to make awful decisions. Like you don't want him necessarily initiating possessions, running pick and roll, but mid possession touches where you're getting him the ball on the move, coming off a handoff and things like that, that are almost then turning into pick and roll reads. Like he can handle those. And I think they really need that man. Like, especially if Middleton's not going to get up to the level that they need him to get up to. They just need as much supplemental creation as they can get. So I'm almost wondering like what player they would even target and how, you know, with Allen and his contract and his age, like kind of being the most sensible piece that would go out in a deal to get a theoretical upgrade. 
I, I'm with you, man. I don't know where or in what form that upgrade comes. And it's like, this gets more dicey when you look toward the off season and potentially Middleton's a free agent. Although maybe at this point he opts in. Yeah, but th- this is all um, why, if you remember going back to our old predictions episode or our season preview episode, whatever it was, when I picked the Bucks to win it and talked about them being the most trustworthy of this group of kind of unconventional contenders, I did say that I saw this season as somewhat of like a last stand for this group between Middleton's free agency, between the ages of Middleton and Holiday, the way you know some of the vets on the team were had maybe lost a step because of the contracts and draft picks that they had already committed to going forward like it's not that i think they're going to completely fall off because when you have Giannis, you shouldn't but it was that in terms of this core i really saw this season as kind of this last stand and i mean they better hope chris middleton comes back like i said like even if it's like 80 percent of what he was but if, if he comes back looking more like the player he was for those couple weeks he was even in the lineup <sighs> yikes then, then at that point, I'm ready to come off them as like my title pick, just because they don't they don't have the offensive juice to win it all. If that's the the Middleton they're getting back, and they don't make some sort of upgrade, which we're both in agreement, they don't really have the means to do. Yeah, it's just like teams are kind of walling up on Giannis with mm-hmm. not many repercussions. They're collapsing the paint on the Bucks drives. I mean, Giannis obviously is a great playmaker on the move. And if you send bodies at him on the drive, like he will find the kickout pass that he needs to find. But after that, you know, if, if it's a role player who has to make the next decision and put the ball on the floor, I don't know. A lot of times there's like a lot of indecisiveness, I think. And I just don't, it just doesn't look good. But back to the Middleton point quickly, I I wonder what you think. So he has that player option for $40 million next year. Let's say he does come back and is like, you know, 75% of himself. And that is enough to get the Bucks to, I don't know, the second round of the playoffs or the conference finals even, and they're competitive. Is he opting in or is he opting out? I think if he performs well in whatever the, you know, sure, second round conference finals, him playing well, whatever the baseline is for him to be able to get another decent contract, if he hits those levels, I think he's opting out because as much I, you know, as much as a forty million dollar salary is obviously incredible for a, what Chris Middleton might be at this point in his career. When you think like guaranteed long term money, a guy that's you know got knee issues now in his thirties that does look like he's slowing down. If he can get a guaranteed, even if it's like three years and a lesser salary, but guaranteed three years of money, I think he takes that. And I think he would opt out. But if he comes back and looks like the player he was for that 10 days he was in the lineup and really looks like he's lost a step and there's concern about whether he can even get a multi-year deal that provides even more long-term security, then he'll take the player option as he should. So I, I really just think it it comes down to what he looks like. But I mean, the fact that we're even having this conversation again is very concerning for the Bucks. Okay, so let's say we don't know what he's going to look like, but you're just predicting now. Does he wind up opting in or not? No. I think he, he declines the player option, becomes a free agent, and is probably playing somewhere else next season. I wonder, you know, like if the Bucks were to hear that, if if someone, if a, a, a future seer was to be like, got some news for you. Chris Middleton's 
not picking up his player option next season. Are they like overjoyed? Cause that probably means he came back and played really well down the stretch of the season. Or are they concerned? Because that means they either have to, you know, pay him his next contract or lose him for nothing. I think they're concerned because look, obviously if that same future seer was like, but it ends with a title this season, then maybe they're <laughs> like, okay, whatever, we'll take it. Two titles and this window is incredible. Like we're yeah. fine. But I mean, they get a, they, obviously are seeing the same things we're seeing and then some right when we talk about the concerns going forward and how they address some of their needs and the fact that they don't really have a means to do it not just this year but in the immediate future but you take Middleton out of the equation it's not like then you take his contract off the books and suddenly they have financial wiggle room like they'd still be cap strapped so uh yeah no it's uh there are concerns yeah it's like the it's the bird rights trap yeah right yeah um I just don't know, man. I mean, the defense is so goddamn good. Yep, and, that, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm like not Lopez. Up. Lopez having like, I don't know, is this Brook Lopez's best season? It might be as an all around basketball player. I'd say yes, because he's been very important for them offensively too. Yeah. He's shooting the three well. He's you know can always sort of pivot into that old school bully ball post game if they need him to, and just an absolute rock in the middle, like uh, an absolute immovable object at the rim. Like he allows for so much of what they do defensively. I don't know if that's going to be enough. Like they, they need to get some kind of offensive punch back. And I just don't know if they can do that without Middleton coming back at, you know, something close to full throttle. So TBD on the bucks, but uh, definitely interesting times for, that franchise and potentially a crossroads approaching. Let's pivot over to the Western conference. Uh, the team that before the season I picked to win the West and not that any of these picks that we make subsequently are official, but you know, when we've talked about it in recent weeks, kind of been focusing more on honestly, the Grizzlies and Pelicans, the teams that I felt a little bit more confident in. And the big reason for that was I just like the Nuggets couldn't defend. And now they can maybe they're the inverse of the Bucks. Like we, we talked about the Bucks with the with yeah, we, the camps. Yeah. The the Nuggets are what, number two offense, number twenty two defense? I'll say this though. The Nuggets offense is better than the Bucks defense. I'm not just saying like because offense trumps defense generally, yeah. but if we're saying here are these two entities and we're comparing them to the rest of the league. And we're saying which of these things has more value. To me, it is Denver's offense. Like they are the best yep. offense in basketball, full stop. They're completely unstoppable. The game is like so easy for Jokic right now. It's a joke. And I'm, I'm really, despite everything we said last year about how that postseason really proved to us beyond a doubt that you need to have like at least a borderline elite defense to meaningfully contend. I think this team might be the exception because of how good Nikola Jokic is because of how good that offense is and how all those pieces fit together. And if you look at their last 13 games, I know it seems like a kind of arbitrary cutoff, yeah, but this 13 was games was a sample that Andrea Bargnani also looked like an all-star. So let's hear what you have to say. here. And we're still talking about it 12 years later. So, <laughs> um, so 13 games ago was when they lost badly to the Lakers when Anthony Davis got injured, didn't play the second half of that game. 
they still gave up 126 points and lost by 18. And Mike Malone really lit into his team after that game. And he was basically like, what are we doing here? Are we just wasting our time? And was very exasperated. And it was really a low point for that team. And since then, they've completely turned it around. They're 11-2 and two with the second best defensive rating in the league. I, I wrote about this today because I dove pretty deep into how they were doing it. And a good rule of thumb is if a bad defensive team suddenly becomes good, opponent shooting variance probably had a lot to do with it. And that is the case. Uh, the Nuggets, during this 13-game stretch, have the lowest opponent three-point percentage in the league, uh, 32%. But I think there are a lot of positive process indicators mixed in with that. Like, I don't think you can just chalk it up to opponent shooting. They're allowing a lot fewer threes, forcing more mid-range jumpers, forcing more off-the-dribble jumpers than they were before. Their rim defense, which is still pretty bad, is not quite as bad as it was they're experimenting with some schematic stuff that I think is really interesting playing more zone um we can get into talking about all this but Cash what have your thoughts been watching the Nuggets recently as they have surged to the top of the Western Conference standings that they're the best team in the Western Conference um that they you know we talk about the Bucks and the trust thing I think they're the team I trust the most in the Western Conference but that the defense as good as it's been the last few weeks is still a major concern. The last two teams to win a championship without a top 10 defense were the 2018 Warriors, probably the most talent assembled on one team ever. And even they, they were the 11th ranked team. Okay. Defensively. And before that, it was the 2001 Lakers of Kobe and Shaq who were 21st defensively during the season famously did not give a shit during that regular season. And then when I believe 15 and one during the playoffs, because they, flipped a switch that the Nuggets just don't have defensively. That Lakers team was 21st. The Nuggets are 22nd defensively, and that's including this recent stretch where they've been that good. On the whole, this is still a bottom 10 defense. So that does concern me. But I will say, kind of going back and tying this to what we talked about off the top of this episode, that maybe if there was ever going to be a season where you don't need to hit all the traditional benchmarks of an NBA champion with respect to top 10 defense this has to be in line this has to be in line this has to be in line maybe it is the 2022-23 season when there is this unprecedented parity when there is this unprecedented lack of a truly dominant team I do think that I think that if there's a season a team like the Nuggets can get away with being this incredibly stacked and functional and competent offensive team that can't really get stops can they get away with that and win the title if it's going to happen any year it would be this year so the defense concerns the hell out of me, but way less than it would in a traditional season when we'd be talking about a wannabe contender. I think it's hard to watch what has unfolded this season and not say that the Denver Nuggets can absolutely win the title, even as presently constructed and as presently functioning with the defense being as bad as it is. All right, so I'm going to throw a, a number at you. The Cleveland Cavs, currently the best defense in basketball, They've allowed 109.2 points per 100 possessions. I can't believe that that is the best defense in basketball. Like, wow, we have entered the twilight zone. The NBA offensive environment is just 
completely out of control right now. But the Cavs have the best defense in basketball, 109.2 per 100 allowed. The Nuggets starting lineup, you want to ballpark what their defensive rating is? Their starting lineup, the lineup that's been murdering teams overall. Yeah. Defensive rating. Probably like 110. As 104.5. Oh, wow. All right. You know, uh, almost five points per hundred better than the best defense in basketball. If you filter for lineups that have played at least 200 minutes together this season, that ranks second. Uh, You might be equally shocked to hear the team that ranks first, but that ranks second and their plus 16.6 net rating ranks second to the Warriors starters. Which lineup ranks first in uh, defensive, which big minute lineup ranks first in defensive rating? Uh, The Timberwolves starters. (laughs) Yeah. All right. The NBA is weird, man. That's all I have to say about that. But I guess my point is, and, and I'm not saying that's definitive. I'm not saying that that means that they're a good defensive team on the whole or that the issues that we know exist aren't going to crop up and be challenging for them to overcome in the playoffs, right? Like I can't just throw that number out there and say they're fine. We know what the limitations are. We know about the kind of lack of scheme versatility, which again, they're doing some interesting things uh, that I think could come to bear, you know, when it comes time to, you know, be more adaptable in a playoff setting. But uh, yeah, we know about Jokic's limitations. We know about Michael Porter Jr.'s limitations. Although I think, I got to say, man, since he came back from that heel injury, I think he's playing the best off-ball defense of his life. Like, I think he's I don't so vastly improved as like a team defender. I'm really impressed. The on-ball stuff, still very worrying. And teams are going to pick at that, man. Like, and his shot hasn't come all the way back yet either. No, but he's been he's been good enough, man. Like yeah. they're, yeah, I think sure. they're getting what they need from him offensively. And I, I honestly think just in terms of having a guy who's 6'10 to be on the back line when like their base coverage, we've talked about it so many times, right? Jokic is coming up to the level. And that means that they're often facing those kind of three on four scenarios on the backside. And it's, it really makes a difference having Porter back there because before, especially when like if, if Gordon would be the guy guarding the ball handler and pick and roll, and then the backline rotations would have to be navigated by Murray, KCP and Bruce Brown, all of whom are good defenders. And we can talk about Murray who like Murray is finding it at both ends of the floor right now. And that's why I think, the Nuggets are looking so scary right now is because he's starting to look like Jamal Murray again. And their additions have been everything they wanted and more. Like KCP oh my is God. shooting the shit out of the ball and has been good two ways. Bruce Brown, just as we expected, is the perfect player to play off of Jokic. Like, they're, they're good, man. They're really good. They're as yeah. good as anyone in the league. With um, arguably the best player and the guy who should be the three-time reigning MVP in a few months. Um, but anyway, the point I was making, so like I, Murray's been good defensively. KCP has been great. Bruce Brown's been great, but it's just like, you're kind of small on the backside. If those are the three guys who are back there. And and honestly, having Porter jr. There as a six ten guy instead makes a big difference. Um, and it's not just his size, right? Like he's making the right decisions. He's playing between two guys and zoning up the weak side. And he's doing the tag and recover thing. He's doing what he needs to do as a team defender. It's when teams like, 
you know, start to pick on him and his on-ball weaknesses that it becomes a concern. And I thought the the game against the Celtics, whenever that was, like a, a week or two weeks ago, that the Nuggets won and ultimately had a good defensive game. I thought it was interesting. Like the Celtics picked on Porter and like targeted him in pick and roll more than they did Jokic. And what they did instead was basically had like Horford stand in the corner and space Jokic out. And it's like making Jokic be the guy who has to make the sort of help and recover decisions and make Porter the guy who has to like contain the ball in pick and roll action. And it was sort of like playing away from Porter's strengths and not necessarily playing away from Jokic's strengths because, you know, he can struggle in ball screen action too. But I thought that was sort of an interesting strategy and one that I wonder if we'll we'll see a little bit more. So those concerns still exist. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to just like throw that 104.5 number out there and be like, see, good defensive team. They'll, they'll be fine. But I, I do think there is something to it in that, you know, for one thing, I mentioned them playing zone. I think that's super interesting. And like, you don't have to play a straight zone either. Like you can introduce these kind of zone concepts where, like next thing is becoming a big thing where when, when the, other, the opposing team's running pick and roll, it's essentially instead of having your big come up to defend that action when like his man is setting the screen, okay. you have the help come from the opposite wing. And then the on-ball defender sort of peels off and you kind of exchange assignments. And that basically just allows your big to like stay in a drop close to the basket. I feel like that... Um, that's interesting. I haven't paid attention to that. I, f- I feel like that would also require a lot of synchronization and for sure. It's not like an easy good thing communication, to pull off like a, a very like a team that's comfortable with each other has played together. Yeah, well it's just even if they're not good defensively, it's like well functioning defensively. Think of it as just like a, a more aggressive form of nail help, where okay. instead of a guy coming over to like stunt at the nail to like deter a ball handler's downhill progress out of the pick and roll. They're sort of just jumping all the way over and taking on that assignment. Yeah. And it's really interesting and really effective when it works. So that's the kind of stuff that they can start to work in and like pre-switching to just to like, you know, essentially you have Jokic playing a one-man zone or just straight up playing zone, which they've done a lot of. Various ways to actually keep him closer to the basket and out of ball screen action so you're not having to put two on the ball and wind up in rotation as often as they otherwise do. And the reason that's interesting to me and the reason I think it could really work and and has worked in small doses is that like, to me, the biggest reason that they don't play Jokic in drop is that when he's backpedaling and trying to contain the ball, like that's where he struggles the most, but we know he's got really good hands and good anticipation and so like that's like playing him up at the level kind of makes use of his size and his hands more so than playing him in drop. But if he's standing on the back line in like a zone or just like a, you know, a pre-switching scheme where he's not moving that much, he can use those disruptive tendencies closer to the basket in a stationary way where he doesn't have to be moving. Yep. He's not backpedaling. And I think that's, uh, if he's going to be kind of on the back line closer to the basket, that's a better role for him um, and, a, and a better way for him to use his size and his hands than in, you know, traditional drop. So I've seen a bit of that and it's been, it's been really interesting to me and just, 
even if they do want to play like a standard drop, it's going to be so much more effective this year than it's been in the past because they've never, at least not in the Jokic era, they have not had point of attack defense like this. They haven't had anyone like KCP or even like Bruce Brown or even this version of Murray, who I think, again, is defending really well. Guys who you can really trust to stay attached to ball handlers, to fight over screens, to where, you know, it's not all on Jokic to play one on two. Like drop becomes a little bit more viable. And I just think in the playoffs, that sort of scheme versatility is so important. And the Nuggets will still be limited in some ways, but they have options now, I feel like, that they maybe didn't have in the past. Okay, well, all of this leads me to two questions that I think we can put a bow on everything with. One, who replaces you as co-host now that you're going to be the Nuggets defensive coordinator for the final few months of the season? And two, in all seriousness, given everything we've talked about today, given what we and, and you specifically predicted coming into the season, if right now, and I know you're going to just love this question. Right now, the Nuggets and the Bucks are matching up in a best of seven series. Chris Middleton is back for it, but you don't know what Chris Middleton's going to look like. Who are you picking? Nuggets. Uh, that's the team that I feel more confident in right now. Because again, okay, so I said Nuggets offense better than Bucks defense. Yeah. I guess. And also, next- literally, it is. It's number two offense versus number three defense. Um, the next question then I guess would be which do I worry about more the Nuggets defense or the Bucks offense? And you know, if Middleton's there and even at like 75% capacity, I might say that I worry more about the Nuggets defense. I agree. But funny enough, I wouldn't worry about the Nuggets defense that much against the Bucks offense. Like that is actually about the best matchup that their defense could expect to see in the finals. Like they would probably, I'm not saying they'd be happy to see the Bucks in the finals, but just from that perspective, like in terms of what it would mean for their defense, I kind of do think, yeah, like that's the team they'd want to play. Like that's not the team that is really equipped to exploit their limitations. So I'm going Nuggets. By the way, their defensive coordinator right now is Ryan Saunders. Oh, uh, wow. I did so, not realize that. Yeah. Uh, Shouts well, to him, sh- man, because I, I yeah, do think Yeah, but it's a shame doing- that he's going to have to lose his job again because <laughs> you're coming in. <laughs> no, all this stuff is stuff that I've seen them doing. You know, yes, like I'm not I just know, pulling this stuff out of my ass. Like You wrote it, about it today. I just got the alert about it on my phone. I'll have to check that out when we get off this call. Yeah. Try not to pay too much attention to the fact that if their opponents had just been shooting league average from like mid-range and three-point range uh, over this stretch that they'd basically be where they were at before. Ignore that and focus on the the process stuff that I think is actually super intriguing. And um, okay, so the questions that we had about them early in the season were the the defensive question that we've hit on and the bench. Any improvement to your eye in terms of what they've been able to do with that second unit? I mean, DeAndre Jordan has been excised in favor of Zeke Naji. That's kind of helped stabilize the second unit defense. What what else have you seen and what, if anything, gives you hope that maybe it's not going to be as bad as what we saw early in the season? No, I think the some of the things they found, even Brown, Christian Brown, spelt mm-hmm. Braun, but pronounced Brown uh, off their bench, who we talked about early in the season. I think he's, um, you know, a defensive-minded 
guy that Malone likes and that has helped stabilize their bench. I think they do have sneaky depth that they've kind of found as the season has progressed with a guy like Brown with Kankar. Is that how you pronounce it? I think it's Chanchar. Chanchar, who actually almost made my all nobody list this, uh, this year. And then I ended up somebody he's been awesome. I know, but that's what I say. So he almost made the all nobody team, you know, the nobody's becoming somebody's this season. But when I did it, he was like on the bubble and I was like, nah, I feel like I'm getting too cute with this one. And then literally three weeks since I published that feature have been like his best two weeks and I'm kicking myself for not having him on that team. All of which is to say, I'm shooting 49% from three, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do think that there is depth there that we maybe didn't account for coming into the season. And that, you know, this is sometimes for a team like the Nuggets, where you, people might say, oh, the regular season doesn't matter. Like this is the kind of things that you discover during the regular season, whether it's different ways that you can f- cobble together a competent defense or whether it's guys who can up your depth and that you can trust in big moments that you maybe didn't really think you could at the beginning of the season. So I don't have as many questions about their depth as I did coming into the season. And I still have as many questions about their defense. But like I said, I've kind of talked myself into like, if there's ever a year where a team like this could win it, it would be this year. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things I'm curious to see. One is Chanchar going to stick with that bench unit when Jeff Green comes back? Cause that's basically whose spot he took. And Jeff Green is dealing with a hand fracture, which is going to keep him out for, I don't know how long, but yeah, Chanchar shooting 49% from three competing on defense, really fun player. Um, and then, you know, the other big thing, Bones Highland, like, to me, there are like two unambiguous defensive minuses in the Nuggets rotation, and it's MPJ and it's Bones. And I mentioned like the positive things that MPJ brings in spite of his limitations, and like Bones doesn't bring any of them. He's just a straight up minus. And I do wonder, like they need him to keep the offense afloat for that second unit. But, uh, you know, can they afford when the games start to really matter? to play him big minutes considering what a defensive liability he is. And like a big part of what's interesting about that to me is like now their sort of preferred transitional lineup is Murray plus bench. Mm -hmm. And that works offensively. Like before it was kind of, I think just a little bit too much on bones shoulders in terms of like the creation burden when Jokic wasn't out there. Murray helps with that a lot, but uh, with those two guys out there together, the Nuggets have a 124.1 defensive rating. So, uh, yeah, don't know if that can sustain. But, um, yeah, it's it's hard to argue that this is the team playing the best in the NBA right now. And, you know, I don't know if that means they're going to be the best team at the end of the day. But, man, I, I just, I believe in Jokic and I believe in that offense yeah. to, uh, to a degree that is you know, threatening to make me forget about what I said last year, where I was like, I'm not going to fall for any of these teams that can't play defense uh, with the best of the best. I just don't know anymore, man. This team, this team's really good. Fool me once, as there George Bush famously once said, and you can't get fooled again. <laughs> not not remembering how that saying goes. All right. Uh, you want me to get to a fan shout out or you have anything else to say? No, here? that's it, man. Yeah. Give us, give us a shout out. All right, this week's shout-out goes to Harpreet Grawal, who reached out around uh, the holiday season via Instagram to say that he was uh, he was a little behind on the pods at the time. He was listening to uh, the one about Steph's injury. 
at the time, but also found our son's disrespect in that episode hilarious. I don't even remember what we said about the sons of that episode, but I'll take your word for it that it was hilarious, Harpreet. Uh, he said he had to rewind because he missed so much of the podcast laughing. Anyway, he says he used to live in Guelph, Ontario, and so he loves how I went from using the gun to the head expression against Wolfon to now putting his family fortune and the Wolfon Park in Guelph up for grabs instead since he did once live in Guelph. So he loves Pound the Rock. Said he loves Pound the Rock from a proud Torontonian and Raptors fan that now lives in the Bay Area and constantly reminds bandwagon Warriors fans that it was the Raptors who ended their dynasty. Harpreet, appreciate the uh, support. Very much appreciate the detailed message uh, and how much enjoyment you're getting out of Pound the Rock. The usual call out for all of our loyal listeners like Harpreet that not only just want a uh, shout out from us, but deserve one for allowing Wolf on and I to do what we do. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y O U at Joseph Cacharo email Joe dot Wolf at the score.com Joseph at the score.com or find me on Instagram like Harpreet did at Joe underscore 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 cash. And we will get you a shout out on one of those future episodes until then throwing it back over to Nuggets defensive coordinator, Joe Wolfhorn. Please stop. I, uh, <laughs> Don't worry. Ryan Saunders is not listening. He does not think I'm calling for his job. Um, thank you, Cash. Thank you, Harpreet. Thank you to all our listeners for riding with us for however long. One episode, two episodes, 277 episodes. We sincerely appreciate it. And we also appreciate you being patient with us as we you know, we, we've scaled down a little bit. We've had fewer two podcast weeks this year. Our schedules have just, at times they haven't lined up. We've been super busy. You know, parental duties have gotten in the way for me a lot of the time. But uh, we're doing our best and we are sincerely hoping to be back next week with two episodes. Until then, we're signing off of this one. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Mm-hmm.